This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is unborn human life and what kind of court cases, not only in the U.S. but abroad, illuminate the matter from the standpoint of the many fields in which the term is employed, law, bioethics, and philosophy, among others? These questions are addressed by a distinguished group of scholars in the 2019 book, Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights, Leading Constitutional Cases Under Scrutiny. In this fascinating collection of case studies from countries such as Argentina, Canada, Chile, Costa Rica, Italy, Poland, and Spain, as well as the United States, we learn that abortion is not always a catalyst for landmark constitutional cases in many lands. So are such concerns as the moral questions raised by in vitro fertilization and the morning after pill. Not only does the book provide a look into the workings and worldviews of various constitutional courts and legal systems in many countries, it also shows how activists on both sides of the issue of unborn human life, and there are those who take issue with the term itself, draw on or oppose rulings and or proclamations over the past decades of such international legal bodies as the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the European Court on Human Rights to make their cases. Anyone interested in real-world, high-profile applications of international law generally and human rights law specifically should read this book. Those interested in the many legal and philosophical arguments about when life begins and who is deemed worthy of the dignity of life and endowed with rights should read this book. Anyone interested in reproductive health globally should read it too. The book includes a powerful concluding essay on, by a giant of natural law thinking, John Finnis, that addresses the many moral and jurisprudential issues discussed by the contributors to this important book. In this interview, one of the editors of the book, William L. Saunders, will discuss how this panoply of judges and legislators wrestled with thorny issues that range from embryology and the latest in reproductive technology and the ethical and practical issues surrounding it, such as what is to be done with the surplus embryos now in a cruel limbo and labs the world over, to what Venice refers to as fundamental civility and humanity. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with William L. Saunders, one of the co-editors of the 2019 collection of essays, Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights, Leading Constitutional Cases Under Scrutiny. Thank you for joining us today, Bill. Glad to be with you. Good. Before we get to the book itself, I'd like, to tell our, I'd like you to tell our listeners something about yourself, because we are going to discuss, we're going to discuss some topics that are somewhat controversial, such as abortion law and various topics in the realm of bioethics. It would help us to know where you are coming from, so to speak, professionally and philosophically. Given, the, given that the title of your own chapter of the book is entitled "Judicial Interference in the Production of Human in the Protection of Human Life in the United States: Actions and Consequences," perhaps you could, perhaps you could tell us about your legal background to start off with. Well, I'm a graduate of Harvard Law School, and I have worked in public policy in Washington D.C. Um, for just about 30 years, and I've worked in human rights uh, for most of that time. Um, I have seen how arguments over basic human rights are usually pretty poorly made and pretty poorly engaged, and 
I was uh, one of the many people, but I was one of the people in the center of the uh, national conversation about cloning in the early 2000s, and I saw up close how language was used or misused to communicate factual situations about which ethical decisions had to be made. So after about uh, these many years of, of doing public policy, I'm now at the Catholic University of America, and I am uh, both in the School of Arts and Sciences and in the law school, and I direct a program in human rights, uh, the aim of which is to equip people to add to the public conversation about issues by having a rigorous, logical, and ethical approach. That's very helpful. And that program is op is really new, I understand. Yes, it's, it's brand new. It's one year old. Uh, and well, I guess we've just started our second class of students. And uh, I encourage anybody who's interested in learning about human rights, I would say from the kind of classical Western approach um, to, to check it out. We have a webpage, mahumanrights.com, and they can get a lot of information there. I, I have a very distinguished advisory board, which includes uh, Robert George of Princeton and Marianne Glendon of Harvard and uh, John Keown of Georgetown and others. And um, it's, it's fun. We have an interdisciplinary program, which means the students study law, philosophy, theology and political theory um, in order to equip them to have a kind of a robust understanding of human rights. Yeah, you mentioned Robert P. George, and that's how I heard about the program. I saw an interview that you conducted with him about and about human rights in general, but he, he, you got onto the subject of the new program, and he spoke very highly of it. One thing I was interested in that he said about you was that he's, he's called you a hero, and he said that not only are you an academic, but you have done some very noble and dangerous work on the front lines of human rights. Is that correct? Well, what he was referring to is, <clears throat> I think, principally, uh, again, in the, in the early 2000s, a lot of your listeners won't know this, but there was actually genocide taking place <clears throat> in the country of Sudan in Africa, where uh, it's complicated. I can talk more about it if you want to. But I was, uh, through my human rights work, I, I met an African bishop who had come to America to try to sound the alarm about <clears throat> the Islamic fundamentalism that was driving the actions of the government in that country. And <clears throat> through helping him, I also set up a nonprofit organization which whose aim was to do two things. Number one, to, we called it Sudan Rescue and Relief. So we tried to, this, this area called the Nuba Mountains in particular was off limits to relief organizations because the government wouldn't permit it. And although they had negotiated a deal with the United Nations to permit the delivery of relief, they wouldn't do it in the Nuba Mountains. So nobody was going in there. So we set up an organization to take relief uh, into the Nuba Mountains and to raise the issue of the genocide uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, 
among the uh, houses of the Senate and the Congress. So I went there several times, and you know we were it, it was a it was a war zone. It was a civil war. <clears throat> we had bodyguards, and you know we were our air, we had a small airplane, and we came in through a circuitous route from the Kenya border. So we were fired at from the ground. We were um, fired at on the ground uh, when we were there. Um, so, you know, it is true that my life was at risk, but the thing that's so important is, you know, people who were there lived, you know, lived with that every day. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I was there sometimes and my life was at risk. So I was glad to do it. I don't consider myself a hero. Well, I, I think it helps establish that your commitment to human rights is not always death-bound, and it's clearly something that, that you care about and devoted to much of your adult life, too. So, and now on to the book. I'd like to mention, apropos of the, in the book, that you, you and your co-editor say in the foreword that you hope it will be, in, be of interest to the educated layman. And speaking as a member of that group, I can assure you it is. It definitely is. It's, it's not arcane at all. It's very approachable. It's very moving in parts. And it's very educational, edifying to learn what the law is about abortion and embryonic stem cell research and, and assisted fertilization throughout the world so that we in the United States can understand where, where we stand in comparison to other countries. It's always very helpful. I'd like to start with a key phrase uh, in, this, in the book. Uh, the title of the book, uh, a title that it, which is, of course, Unborn Human Life, uh, that's part of the title. And there's some on the left who scoff or bridle they don't, uh, the word unborn. Could you please elaborate on that? Well, it's just a reflection of the simple fact that a human being, once in existence, is continuous, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, whether in a Petri dish or in the womb, until it dies. So... If unborn human life, or if human life exists in the womb, it's simply unborn, but it already exists. It doesn't, in other words, it doesn't come into existence upon birth. It's already in existence. So the question in the book really was to consider how that reality has been uh, addressed by courts in various countries because everybody would concede i'm sure every one of your listeners would concede fundamental rights apply to all other human beings so how do they apply to unborn human beings i'd like to read a particularly striking passage in in the book from your own chapter which we'll discuss um again a little later but it's it's concerns roe v wade and you write all restrictions were swept away. America was now, as explained below, and you do, the whole chapter deals with that. America was now, as explained below, a nation of abortion on demand. Let me be clear what that means. It means that a woman can have an abortion at any time for any reason. I imagine you will find this shocking. To help understand how this occurred, let me examine the cases in more detail. And that's you speaking. And I did find that shocking. And then there seems to be a lot of confusion about these crucial points on the part of average people. So I'd like to kind of drill down into this matter. Could you please address what the, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, could you please address what the case is now in terms of Governor, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's infa, inf, infamous comments about what is basically infanticide? The passage in 2019 of an extremely abortion-friendly reproductive health act in New York State 
and the failure of Measure 106, which aimed at ending taxpayer-funded abortion in my home state of Oregon. Although Roe v. Wade severely hampered the democratic process at the state level on the matter of abortion for decades, there seems to be, as we see in those examples, a surprising amount of activity at the state level on both the liberal side in those examples and on the conservative side, for example, Indiana's attempt to ban abortion based on gender or Down syndrome and the various heartbeat bills in other states and the efforts of Louisiana and Texas to require doctors who perform abortions to have some relations with nearby hospitals. And is it indeed now the case that in every state of the union, a woman, a woman can have an abortion for any reason and any time up to the very day of the birth of the baby? Is that correct? Yes. That's really amazing. And I don't, I, I just, it's, it's that, that I learned from your book. And I think that alone is, is worth yes. a, a reading of the book. Yeah, it's quite, I don't know if you'd like for me to say some more about it. <laughs> I wanted yes, to just give you, you know, the simple answer to your question, but to understand, so almost no Americans realize that, and I think that's true. Like you, the, and they're shocked, and that's what they're shocked by. It, but the fact is, and the well, we'll get into this, but it's there's complicated case law. But so I, I am a lawyer, so I don't want to go in too much depth, but I've got to go into a certain amount of depth. So interrupt me if you want to, but let me just kind of outline the situation. <clears throat> okay. Roe v. Wade was 1973 case by the Supreme court. <clears throat> and it recommend, it, it recognized um, a right to abortion. Although I have to say the case was unclear where that right was located. In other words, the Constitution is a written document. You know, you can pull it up online and read it. And you can read it to, you know, forever, and you'll never find the word abortion in it. So somehow, though, they found that the Constitution guaranteed a right to abortion. They put forth a trimester framework and said, this is what most people know what I'm about to say. So they think most abortions uh, are prohibited. So they said there's a trimester framework, and in the first trimester, you couldn't regulate the abortion. In the second trimester, you could regulate it uh, uh, in interest of a woman's health. And in the third trimester, you could regulate it and even ban it um, with, with the added interest in feet, what they call fetal life. So to most people, that sounds like, okay, so most states will regulate abortion. Abortion will be available uh, in the first trimester, but it, subsequently it'll be very restricted and very unusual. And in fact, uh, you know, most, when they do polls of American citizens, most American citizens seem to favor something like that. But there was another case decided the same day as Roe v. Wade, which is called Doe v. Bolton. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that uh, first, I'm sorry, I got to back up one thing. Roe v. Wade said that in the third trimester, you could maybe even eliminate abortion so long as you didn't uh, imperil the woman's health or life. So Doe v. Bolton decided the same day, it's a companion case announced at the same time, it's literally kind of part two of Roe v. Wade. In fact, the dissent in both cases is exactly the same. Said 
So Dove said, okay, if someone wants an abortion, um, who has to approve the abortion? In other words, you know, there was a state statute that said you had to have two doctors' approval if you sought to have an abortion, uh, <clears throat> one being a family doctor and one being your own. Uh, well, I don't remember if it specified the other one, but you had to have two doctors. So the Supreme Court said, no, that would be an infringement on the right, and so there only needs to be one doctor who approves it. And it said the doctor could be uh, the person who performs the abortion. Hmm. So, I mean, I think just common sense, and you, you or anybody listening, if the person who performs the abortion has a financial incentive. I, you know, it just, they get money if they're performing abortion. And, or, or an ideological incentive, too. That's true. And it cuts the woman off from, say, a long-standing doctor that she's had, you know, that she trusts and is, you know, taking care of her health. Because you only have to go to the abortionist. And then the second thing, was the Supreme Court defined health. So remember from Roe, Roe said in the third trimester you could you could even prohibit an abortion if it didn't infringe or imperil the woman's health. Health was defined by Doe to be any factor considered mm. of importance uh, by the, the woman and the abortionist, which means any factor. So that means health is the broadest possible idea. So that was in 1973. And the next really, really big case was called Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. It's a very interesting case, and it's more or less the governing standard today. And it said it upheld Roe, but it kind of changed Roe a little bit. But the bottom line was five justices voted to continue to recognize uh, a right to abortion under Roe, and four justices voted not to. So it's interesting to pause just for a second to realize that in 1992, there were four justices on the Supreme Court who were willing to overturn Roe v. Wade, <clears throat> and there were five who voted to, keep, to uphold it. Of the five who voted to uphold it, they couldn't agree with each other on the basis so three of them agreed in, a, in an opinion, three of the five, which is called the plurality because it's, you know, most of the people in the majority. And they put forth some standards that have pretty much been the issue and litigated uh, ever since, including very recently. But they said that they weren't sticking with the trimester system, but that once, once viability had been reached, um, a state could could regulate and even prohibit abortion, uh, again, so long as it didn't imperil the woman's life or health. Um, and it talked about, uh, so long as the state did not, the language it used, impose an undue burden. So an undue burden is whether, according to that court, is whether a law, so if the state of X, say Maryland or North Carolina, passes a law, if it, if, even if we're post-viability, if the law has either the purpose, which means some of the legislators wanted to limit abortion, or the effect, which means 
it's a little bit, uh, it's somewhat more difficult to get an abortion, then they would strike it down. Um, now, what this has meant in practice is that every time a state passes a restriction on abortion, it's immediately litigated in the federal courts. Mm. And what always happens is the federal court puts an injunction against the statute so it can't be enforced because nobody really understands what undue burden means. So there's a standard after Casey is, you know, no, no law that has an undue burden is constitutional, but undue burden is not really defined. I mean, it, Sometimes the courts use the language of, well, does it place a substantial obstacle? Well, what does that mean? So some of the more recent cases have been about statistics. You know, in the state of Texas, if we limit abortion this way, does it mean what percentage of women will not be able to get abortions or will be more difficult? Um, so now... There's one other really important thing about Casey, which I'll just mention, and if you want to, we can talk about it. But I'm, so as I said, Roe v. Wade didn't tell you where the right to abortion came from. I just, I mean, it gave you a couple of possibilities, but it didn't decide it. Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the plurality opinion, so this is just three of the justices, but they were the majority of the, of the five, said that it was located in the liberty interest What's the liberty interest? It's not just the idea of the word of liberty, which, of course, every American believes in liberty. Probably everybody in the world believes in liberty. The word liberty comes from the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was one of the Civil War amendments, which was passed to enfranchise those who had been slaves to make them full citizens. And it says, no state may deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That is where the word liberty comes from. It comes from, no state should deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process. That's called the due process clause. And if you have ever heard, or any of your listeners have ever heard, of substantive due process, all that means is, what is the substance of the liberty, life, liberty, or property protected in the 14th Amendment? Because otherwise it sounds like a procedural amendment. No one shall be deprived of these things without due process. Substantive due process is a judicial doctrine that says it can tell you what life, liberty, or property means. And so in, the, in Planned Parenthood v. Carhartt, the plurality said liberty meant or included the right to have an abortion. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask a question about this point. That my my understanding is that Roe v. Wade was was based on the this imagined view of privacy, whereas Casey was more about liberty. Is there a difference between privacy and, and liberty? No, it's a very good it's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> it's a very good question. That's why sometimes Casey is is taken as a, a de facto overruling of Roe, because in many ways it recast Roe. You know, it said it was, a, and in fact, Casey, Casey said it was affirming the essential holding of Roe. So you're right, Roe had, had, had relied on privacy, but <clears throat> which again, everybody's in favor of privacy, but if you search the Constitution, you won't find privacy uh, as such. So 
was in Roe, they said they implied it from a they implied a right to privacy from other provisions in the Constitution, and that privacy included a, uh, a right to abortion, although it wasn't laid out in the way I've just done it. But that did seem to be their their holding. So Planned Parenthood Casey said, no, it's located in the liberty interest in the 14th Amendment. So that is a difference. But I'd like, I'd like to ask a question, given that we're speaking today on the day that Amy Coney Barrett is being inter- testifying for the, her confirmation hearings. Are the are the are the liberal senators missing a missing a, a, a an opportunity to ask her about Casey rather than focusing so much on Roe? Well, you know that's a good question. I, I imagine there, you know that although many Americans will find these hearings very interesting, you know what's really going on is not an inquiry into her qualifications. What is really going on is political maneuvering. So uh, those senators who are talking a lot about Roe are probably talking about Roe because they know that most American citizens have heard about Roe and that most Americans probably have the misconception we started talking about, which is that Roe is a trimester system. And there's lots of there's times when the woman, uh, when abortion is very restricted and maybe even outlawed. And, you know, therefore we don't have so many abortions and so that may be why, because they think it uh, communicates a message about Roe, which I'm saying is, is you know, is not correct. Um, but, and it's, and there's some complicated legal reasoning uh, I won't get into either, because Casey is not as solid as Roe was. Roe was a seven to two decision. So mm. Planned Parenthood v. Casey was five to four. And as I said, three, the five didn't even agree with each other as the basis for the decision. So in a way, since some of these Supreme Court cases subsequently, they'll say, assuming Casey is controlling because, and assuming Roe Ro is controlling because did Ch- Casey change Roe and how, how much does Casey apply if it's, but I, I don't want to get too confusing there. The fact is basically uh, in, in these cases, it's taken as if Casey applies so now you, I'm sure, and your listeners think there can be restrictions placed on on abortion rights that, that kind of recognize, as I said before, that, you know, early in the pregnancy is one thing, later in the pregnancy is, not, is, an, is another thing. Some reasons may be compelling, others aren't, like, you know, if the woman has been in some terrible situation or rape incest or something or even you know extreme poverty or whatever but when you get you know after the first trimester uh the restrictions should they assume there are a lot of restrictions and you know you can't get an abortion up to the date of birth but i'm telling you you can the only case that has really restricted abortion um and that you probably have heard about is called gonzalez v carhart which is a case from uh, 2007. And that was the federal ban on partial birth abortion. So Mm. I'm sure you've heard of partial birth abortion and you've heard of probably that case. Mm. So in that case, the Supreme Court said that the national... That's such a a chilling term, partial birth, that... 
it, it, it's it's basically they're saying, well, it's only half born, so we can just and it's a very. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but it's a very gruesome procedure, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what it what it means essentially is that you start the birth process and then kill the child or the unborn life before it exits the womb. Um, so in 2007, which is, you know, 13 years ago, it's not like it's a hundred years ago, it was still a question of whether or not that could be banned. And the Supreme court upheld the ban, um, in a very close decision. And I can just get into so much more detail, but I don't, I don't want to bore bore you or, but, well, one one thing I'm, one thing it might help with is that when the chapter of the, the the title of the chapter of your book is judicial interference in the protection of human life in the United States actions and consequences, and you made the point, I'd like to focus on that word interference, and uh, you you made the point that whenever a state tries to to manage medical issues within its own borders, that they're it's immediately litigated and immediately thrown back into the to the um, the federal courts and that just hampers any 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 action any sovereignty of the states on on some something as vital as this i think that that term if you could discuss the term interference that would be helpful because other people people might say well of course the federal government is not interfering it's protecting the rights of all women at all times in all states sure uh so first let me just say The, the only thing Gonzalez v. Carhart did was to prohibit one form of abortion. There are other ways to, com- uh, to commit abortions, and we don't have to go into them all, but they're different methods. So there's something called partial birth abortion. That was prohibited. But other methods of abortion are still, are still permitted. That's why I say up to the moment of birth. It's just you can't do it by a partial birth abortion, but you can have, because you can, you're healthy, if, you're, if the abortionist decides the woman's health is involved, which means any factor that they consider significant, you can have an abortion up until birth. There's nothing that prohibits that. You just can't have a partial birth abortion. So, and even and, and, North, and North, uh, Ralph Northam's comment was implying that even after the baby is born, then it, it, it said he said something rather chilling, like it will be made comfortable, and a discussion will then ensue. Yes. So this is so this goes back to what you said a second ago, and about state law. So most law in the United States, uh, anyway, most law in the United States is state law. It's passed by the states. So most regulation of things like abortion is done. By the states. Um, that's why the Gonzalez v. Carhart case was so unusual because it was a federal restrictions, a restriction on abortion, partial birth abortion. But so most laws are in the states. So whether something is a crime or not is up to state law. So what Northam is indicating is this, the definition of infanticide will not include taking a born baby uh, who has some issue of some kind and putting it over to the side and letting it die. Mm. So so that's why I call it judicial interference. If the people of Virginia want that to be the law, they should pass a law that says that. That's what Mm. democracy is about. 
If somebody thinks that that's a horrible thing, it shouldn't be done, they should argue that it's a horrible thing, it shouldn't be done. And somebody who thinks it's a good thing or a necessary thing should make an argument. And the legislature in Virginia should pass a law and the governor should sign it. It shouldn't be something that any time... So that's the way every other law works in the United States. If we pass a law, what happens? If it gets challenged in court, unless it involves racial discrimination and sometimes religious discrimination, everything else which are looked at very, very strictly by the courts. You have to have a strict scrutiny. The courts will look at any law restricting uh, rights on the basis of race or religion very strictly. But for anything else, it usually applies what's called a rational basis test. And that just means, is there a rational basis for the law that the legislature passed? You know, is this because that's what legislatures exist to do, is to pass laws. They're the law-passing part of a of a, a democracy. But with abortion, because you have this undue burden test, every abortion statute that is challenged is under a heavier scrutiny of the undue burden standard. So that's why restrictions on abortion are never upheld, because for them to be upheld, you would have to prove that there's no effect of uh, on the number of abortions by the by the law you passed. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about some more examples, but some some laws that are passed to benefit woman, the woman herself, the woman who is uh, undergoing the abortion, are still sometimes struck down because the courts say this law has an effect of making it difficult for other women to have abortions. Now, Anyway, so you've got a question of evidence. How can anybody know that? But that's what the courts say. So that's why it's very difficult for any state, not difficult, it's impossible, for any state to restrict abortion unless we have a standard that is not, as, that is not so undefined as the undue burden standard. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, I think one thing that, one interesting point in the book that you make is that the the mindset of Roe v. Wade affected many other reproductive health issues. And you you write very powerfully, I'm quoting here, the more subtle, indeed, the deeper way Roe v. Wade infected infected and affected the stem cell debate is this, it taught the American people that scientific facts can be ignored for policy reasons. Do you, and then and on that on that point, I'd like to ask, apropos of the, the the issue of science and how this has sort of twisted and warped people's view of science, because the, the it, it 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 becomes a, a woman's uh, Roe v. Wade basically said science is whatever advances the the the, the, the abortion the right of abortion and the, the validity of the science be damned in some cases. But do you find it ironic, therefore, that given that the, the scientific fact was ignored for policy reasons, that the mantra of the left in the climate change debate, for example, and now with public health 
people during the current pandemic, the, pan, the mantra again is, listen to the scientists. And Joseph Biden said he wants now to codify Roe v. Wade and make it the law of the land if he's elected president. And my question to him is, to you about that is, he says he wants to make the law of the land. Isn't it already? Well, that's and, very... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I was just going to say that that if, it, if Roe v. Wade, I, I'm assuming, is, is the law, and then I'll let you answer that in a moment. And then, But I would like to ask before that, how was this, how's the science changed since Roe v. Wade was passed? I know that imaging, for example, that many young women can see ultrasound has advanced hugely, so they can see tiny little toes and tiny little fingers and little faces and so forth. And uh, could you tell us what scientific facts politicians like Biden are ignoring when they tell you, they say, listen to the scientists. Well, which which scientists and what about? Yeah, I mean, well, I think in terms of uh, the question of unborn life, uh, whether it's, again, in the Petri dish or in the womb, there's never been, it, the scientific facts have just been clear for, uh, you know, decades and decades and decades. I mean, life is a continuous process, but it has a starting point. And once it's at that starting point, you have a human life until that human life dies or is killed or whatever. It's continuous. So it's from day one until I saw that one of the great pitchers in the New York Yankees died, I think, at age 97. So that's the same person from day one to day 97. Somewhere in that path, some you know, he not everybody makes 97, so maybe he dies at 60. It's the same person that was there at day one. And it's the same person at day one, at day 14, at day nine months in a day, at day nine months in, in a week. It's it's a, the same human being. Now, some people want to argue that it shouldn't be protected under the law, and I think that's uh, very dangerous uh, idea because it is based on the assumption that somehow some lives, some human beings' lives, are not worth protecting or not uh, are not eligible and should not be eligible for protection by the law. Um, you know, we started off talking about the Sudan and the work I was doing there. Well, one of the other things I was working against in the Sudan was against slavery. There was actual literal, literal chattel slavery where uh, people, uh, slave takers would go into villages, they'd kill the men, they'd take the women and the children as slaves, they would treat them in the most degrading ways, I won't even go through it, then they'd sell them. So we fought that. Now, why did we fight that? We fought that because it treated those people as if they were worse than animals. I mean, it didn't even treat them as well as an animal. And uh, our view, and I'd say our civilization's view, has always been that a human being is deserving of legal protection of the law. Now, sometimes we've done a better job or a worse job of it, but the, the idea behind it, while we recognize you know, why we passed the Civil War amendments in the United States was to, as I said, enfranchise the people who had been slaves and had been treated as property. And the other things we've done, like, you know, extending the vote uh, to women or limiting child wo uh, uh, working uh, conditions, so child welfare laws, have been because we're, we recognize that it's not just white men 
were not just white men over the age of 21, but human beings. And we keep extending, trying to protect people. Um, I th- so I, I, I think it's a very dangerous idea that a human being is not, uh, doesn't deserve the protection of the law simply because it's very, 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 very young and very, very, very small. I mean, that, if you just stop and think about it logically, that's not, a very, that's not very compelling. So let me just get back to one thing you said. You know, why does Joe Biden say he wants to make Roe v. Wade the law of the land? Well, I, I'm not sure what he means, but he very well may mean that what you always hear about, well, what if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Well, if Roe v. Wade were overturned tomorrow, you would probably have, oh, I don't know, let's say roughly half the states that would have very permissive abortion laws, which would permit abortions uh, into the third trimester for sure, and clo- you know maybe not literally up to birth, but pretty close. And then you would have maybe half the states that would have restrictions on abortion. Because in the absence of federal law, state law controls. So when Joe Biden says he wants to codify Roe and make it the law of the land, I assume what he means is he wants to pass a federal statute that would make um, abortion up until, you know, like I've told you, you've got to remember the health exception, which would essentially make abortion available in every state up until the moment of birth. Now, you might say, doesn't that exist now? Yes, it It does exist now, but it's not in a federal statute. So if the Supreme Court ever reverses Roe, what they will be saying is there's no constitutional right to abortion, but that doesn't mean the federal government could not pass a law giving a right to abortion. Well, I'd like to say that one thing I found very surprising in your book, considering how much clamor there is among the feminist left to say, well, we, you know, we have to protect Roe and we're, we're in danger that, that everything will, will become the handmaid's tale and so forth. But one of the things that you make the point that you say that in your chapter of the book, you say that only three or four other nations have the same expansive access to abortion as the U.S. does. So we have one of the most liberal, um, wide-ranging <laughs> right to abortion globally, period. And, and uh, one thing I'd like, to, one of the values of the book is the comparative aspect that I mentioned, The Handmaid's Tale, and that's been much in the news because of the canard that it was based, that it was based on a perfectly, that The Handmaid's Tale was supposedly based on a perfectly respectable Catholic organization that Amy Coney Barrett belongs to. And it, it, the, the author, interestingly, is, is the Canadian Margaret Atwood. And Atwood is the doyen of pro-abortion celebrity authors and in her dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, she paints a picture of oppressive theocracy in which women are forced to bear children and serve as near slaves. You were mentioning slavery just now. And actually, we learned from your book, I'll read what we learned about Canada in the book. You say, I mean, in the chapter about it, which you didn't author, but one of your authors penned it. Canada's abortion, criminal law on abortion is in some senses simple to describe. There are no criminal law restrictions on abortion on any ground or at any stage of pregnancy Late-term abortion is entirely permissible, permissible as is same-sex, as is as is sex-selective abortion or abortion for any reason. And I think that's a good point that when these women are dressing up in The Handmaid's Tale to say, what exactly are you complaining about? Abortion in Canada, where Margaret Atwood lives, and in the U.S., it's pretty easy to get one. Yeah. Now, the Canadian situation is <clears throat> remarkable <clears throat> because 
it's 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 just kind of mind blowing. But essentially, the you know the the court had ruled that a, a some a law with some restrictions on abortion is no law was was not constitutional. But the court expected the parliament to pass another law, you know, that would remedy the defects in the law mm-hmm. it had just struck down. But the fact is, because of the politics of abortion, no subsequent law was ever passed, so there are no limits, no criminal limits on abortion in Canada at all. And that is why, again, this will shock your listeners, but it's a simple fact that the four countries with the most liberal, so the most uh, permissive abortion laws are USA, Canada, China, and North Korea. Mm. That's pretty shocking, too, in terms of China's under fire for its its possibly forced sterilization program against the Uyghurs, but it's, it's, I'm not sure of the, that's still being investigated, I guess. Um, uh, apropos of continuing with the, the, the case of the U.S., you discuss, uh, could you discuss the case of June Medical Services versus Russo? Uh, or was it, yeah, Russo, I would think. In that case, just to encapsulate it, the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals. That seems to me a perfectly reasonable measure to ensure that those who perform medical procedures have some kind of tie to advanced medical facilities in case something horribly goes wrong with an abortion, which, of course, would endanger the woman. (laughs) Surely those who care about women's health could agree on on the wisdom of such regulations. Could you tell us about, but but they don't. They they say it's an infringement and, and again, probably an undue burden. Could you tell us about why the justices who voted to strike down the law, particularly John Roberts, has got, got that so wrong? Yeah, it's it was, uh, it was a uh, decision in June of this year. Um, hmm. The issue in the case, like you say, is really a very peripheral, how, but even if important, but peripheral uh, law in terms of the abortion itself. In other words, the law at, ri- at stake didn't didn't prohibit any abortions at any time for any reason. Right? There was no. Louisiana didn't say you couldn't get an abortion on the day before birth. So there's no limit being placed on the abortion, the right to get an abortion. It was simply saying that the abortionist has to have admitting privileges in a local hospital because if the woman starts bleeding, and and we have examples of this. I mean, people who challenge this idea should just go online and you know, Google Kermit Gosnell, Philadelphia abortionist. And there are many cases where women are treated just in, just almost like they're in a, they're treated like animals almost by some of these abortionists. And so there are cases, plenty of them, where a woman is bleeding and needs to get to a hospital. So it seems like a reasonable law. But, of course, the Supreme, and I say of course because uh, this just, Well, Gosnell was one of the few cases in which someone went, actually went to prison for one of these That's right. abortion mills, and that, That's was, true. Uh, yeah. that makes it un- unusual in that respect. Yeah, and um, I think it was because of the criminal acts he had committed against the women. But anyway, this statute so just was saying you had to have the same kind of admitting privilege as a doctor would have 
a doctor's supposed to have anyway because of patients. You know, if you doctor's doing some surgery on you and you start to bleed and he can't control it or she can't control it, then he'd take you to the hospital. Anyway, it was struck down by the Supreme Court in a decision that's uh, one of these typical Supreme Court decisions, which is very difficult for an lay, a non-lawyer to understand because what it really was was, <clears throat> so there are nine justices on the court, so it was a called a five to four ruling that struck down the Louisiana law. So you had four justices who would have upheld the Louisiana law. And then in the majority of five, you had four justices who explained substantial burden, remember, that comes from Planned Parenthood v. Casey, as a balancing test where the judge makes a balancing of the, you know, whether it harms women or hurts women. And then the chief justice did not join those, those four. He didn't join their reasoning. So he did not embrace this balancing test on substantial burden, but he did, he did join the result. So in terms of the result, should the statute be struck down or should it be permitted? There were five who said it should be struck down. Roberts did it by join the other in the majority because he said that a previous case in the Supreme Court had actually decided the narrow facts in this case and therefore uh, stare decisis uh, or the rule of precedent means the Supreme Court should simply affirm, you know, this case did not differ materially from the previous case. So, you could look at this decision if, if you think that unborn human life should be protected in the law, and if you are upset about America being one of the foremost permissive abortion regimes in the world, you know, you look at this decision and you're very disappointed because all of the chief justice would have had to do was to join the four who dissented, and you would have had a majority which would have upheld the Louisiana law, and which might even have finally done something about the undue burden standard, but he didn't do it and uh, it was very disappointing. On the other hand, for the people who think abortion is a right that should not be restricted, they're less than happy because Roberts did not join the four uh, who wanted to make it a judicial balancing test. And your listeners need to understand if it's a judicial balancing test, that means the ultimate decider of the issue is the courts. So that means no matter what legislature, no matter what law is passed by a legislature, after however many hearings and however many witnesses, and however finely crafted it is to to uh, comply with Supreme Court precedent, it is still up to the courts to decide because they have a balancing act. And that is just unique in American law, and um, it's why some people call it the abortion distortion, because our ordinary principles of law are just not applied in the abortion context. Well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with William L. Saunders, one of the co-editors of the collection of essays entitled Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights, Leading Constitutional Cases Under Scrutiny. Now, Bill, I'd, oh, excuse me, I'd like to um, shift from abortion because I want to make clear that your book is not exclusively about abortion. It's fascinating and a big part of the book. 
but you also talk about reproductive technologies such as assisted fertilization. And I'd like to read a, a, a very striking uh, passage from the chapter on Italy that uh, could apply, I would think, to many countries in which such technologies are used. And I'd like to read this part. It says, the fracture between procreation and pregnancy imposed by the use of reproductive technologies dissolves the exclusive personal in- intimacy of the dualism between a mother and a child because it causes a multiplication of parental figures, genetic mother, expectant mother, social mother. If we add to artificial procreation the possibilities and responsibilities resulting from pre-implantation or prenatal diagnosis, we realize that the doctor's intervention substitutes the sexual act and substitutes for, I think, what they meant. And this passage, in the extreme case of designer babies, family planning transgresses into scientific planning, mother, mothers, doctor, science, child. And this final passage The protection of life gets lost in an indistinct zone of not yet life, embryos, not enough life, fetus, and no longer life, biological commodities. Is this very much the case in this country as well? Yes. um, It's a a frustrating uh, aspect of law in the United States. The the Italian... uh, chapter you're talking about kind of starts off by talking about why a decision by the what they call the constitutional court in 1975 said that an embryo was a quote human individual but not quote a human person end quote so as john fennis would say in his conclusion you know that the failure to address that issue clearly to begin with leads to a lot of confusion and then so you have this this thing, which is a human individual, but not a human person. And if it were a human person, it would be entitled to the protection of the law. So something similar has happened in the United States. Some of these very early reproductive technology cases where you have embryos that are not, haven't been implanted, um, and there's some, usually two, one or two situations can happen. One is they're unplanned, they're in storage, and the couple who created them have moved away and cannot be found. Or they're in storage, and the couple who created them have divorced or something where they're no longer together and they disagree about whether the embryos can be destroyed. And in the United States, um, some of the uh, leading state courts had found that the embryo was a, a form of essentially a form of property that could be disposed of pursuant to an agreement between the parties. Um, and I think in the, it's in the Canadian chapter, I think, I'm sorry, in the Italian chapter, the author talks about there's this rise of this idea of a right to procreation, but you know, what does, the question is, what does that mean? Well, if I have a right to procreation in these cases, they seem to conclude that I have a right to control the things that make me a parent. And therefore, the things that make me a parent, i.e. the embryos, not, um, not the sperm or the egg, but an embryo, uh, because sperm and egg are not a human being and you can dispose of them as you wish. But an embryo, which we know is a human being, has no rights 
and that seems to be the way it's been treated and or is being treated in a number of countries, including the United States. Well, you talked about the right, the right to become a, I believe you just said the right to become a parent and in, in, in the chapter in Costa Rica, given that you're an international law expert, it's kind of fascinating because in that case, the government of Costa Rica was trying to, or the court was trying to establish that the, the, there, there was a right to life of the, of the embryos, I believe, and that the, uh, the, the internet, the, 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 one of the Latin American international law courts basically imposed on Costa Rica that you must, that, that, that Costa Rica had to not only treat it as a right to have, have this done, but to pr- provide it to the, the, the government of Costa Rica was supposed to provide, pay for it and make sure, ensure that citizens could engage in assisted reproductive technologies. And that was a strange case of international law acting against the interest of the unborn in that the, the parents could produce as many embryos as they wanted and the other, the ones that were not used could be destroyed. Is that, is that more or less? Yeah, that, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think it's interesting to me <clears throat> that what you just described is there is a treaty which uh, is called the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights. So it's a, uh, what a treaty is, is an agreement between nations to abide by some, whatever the subject of the treaty is. And so some countries are members of this treaty and some aren't. I mean, the United States is not a member, but Costa Rica is. And the treaty at issue says, I'll just, in the one relevant provision says, every person has the right to have his life respected. This right, this right shall be protected by law and in general from the moment of conception. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his life. And then in subsequent paragraphs, it goes on to talk about what capital punishment should be eliminated if it hasn't already. But the point is, when it says life should be protected in general from the moment of conception, it's referring to things like capital punishment that uh, could still be permissible. Um, but in any case, there you have, so you have an international court and you have a uh, the court of the nation. So Costa Rica has a Supreme Court, and Costa Rica decided that there was, of course, no right to to uh, reproductive uh, technologies be, if they contravened the you know requirement to respect human life. And then an international court under a treaty that protects human life tells Costa Rica they have to permit assisted suicide. It's very very bizarre, but it's it's not an infrequent occurrence. I'm sorry, assisted suicide or assisted fertilization? I'm sorry, I meant assisted fertilization, assisted reproductive technologies. Yep. Okay, just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, it was, so do, are you at all ambivalent as an international expert about how sometimes, I mean, you make, the point is made in the book that many of these international bodies of law do protect the, the right of the unborn, and yet they're being they're being undermined or that's they're, they're those stipulations are simply ignored yes or turned on their head sometimes yeah you know it's interesting because <clears throat> so there are treaties various treaties all around the world uh, there's this one i just mentioned which is the inter-american convention on human rights a treaty on human rights there's a european treaty on human rights there's something called the international covenant or treaty on human rights 
None of them talk about a right to abortion. Not in not in any of those treaties is that word abortion or embryo destruction uh, mentioned or permitted. And yet courts have found that right um, in various ways that parallels what the Supreme Court did in, in Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> and so this book, as you say, is, is a comparative book. It's not just about abortion and it's not just about America. And it looks at Europe and Latin America, as well as North America, and it looks at different legal systems, the common law, as well as the kind of Napoleonic Code type uh, European law, and it looks at the role of these international organizations, which sometimes act in ways that really uh, are not, as far as I can tell, congruent with the text. Well, you mentioned the fact that you mentioned John Finnis a few minutes ago, and I'd like to read a bit from him about the, the conclusion. He makes a conclusion of the book in which he over he uh, addresses each of the chapters individually, and and some of them, one of them he disagrees with, which is fascinating, and he's very frank about that. Uh, one of the minor one of the arguments made, but he writes, if there is to be a legal subcategory of homicide to deal with the violation of the right to life of the unborn. That category should not be framed as, as it typically has been in terms such a, as abortion or inducing a, merit, a, a miscarriage. Instead, the proper description of the actus reus, the prohibited behavior, is, is, is destruction of the life of the unborn child, or in the case of children generated in vitro, a category such as destruction of a developing human embryo. And that's strong language. And could you tell us a little bit about John Finnis and and his and his his stature in the, in the uh, on these issues? Yes, uh, I can tell you that I was <clears throat> very honored to have uh, the the concluding kind of summing up and analysis of the whole book by John Finnis because he is certainly the world's leading. Uh, scholar of jurisprudence or legal philosophy. Uh, he is respected throughout the world, not just he's, he's a uh, emeritus professor of jurisprudence at Oxford University, uh, but he's respected throughout Europe and throughout Latin America as well. So I was very honored to have him. I, I think he's, um, you know, a historical figure that people be reading his works, you know, a hundred years from now. And he, he um, so that's who he is. Well, he, he writes very powerfully, and he, on the matter, uh, one of the things in the book that's very interesting throughout is the art, the authors, each of them at some point parses the, the matter of the language and the terminology used to discuss unborn life. And Finnis writes, in English-speaking countries, even conservative judges willing to defend laws restricting abortions, inducing miscarriage, etc., has, have been all but universally unwilling to do so on the basis on the basis of a proper jur, jur, juridical assessment of the boundaries of the key juridical category, person. Instead, they have relied on arguments about the usurpation of judicial power or about the impropriety of overriding the authority of state, provincial, legislatures. There has been a notable failure of ju, ju, judicial nerve. And I'd like to ask: Is that altogether fair to conservative judges? They're not. They're not supposed to be philosophers and robes. Is that? Yeah. I just chuckle because that's, that's a very good point. Um, I think, I don't want to speak for John Finnis 
put words in his mouth, but I mean, I think what he would say is just the, you can understand the word person in ways that, uh, that are logical and entailed, not polemical. Um, you remember earlier in our conversation, I was talking about the point that the law should, uh, you know, human beings should be protected by the law and it shouldn't matter what kind of human being you are, whether you're young or little or old or, you know, black or white or Catholic or Jew or, you know, man or woman. I mean, if whatever you are, if you're a human being, and I, you know, which means a member of the human species, you're in, you should be entitled to the protection of the law. And I, in, you know, in philosophy, there's been quite a, long history of saying there's some difference between being a human being and being a person and that you're not a person until you have certain characteristics, for instance, that you can, uh, you know, you can understand certain things or express certain things or, or feel certain things. And if you don't have those uh, characteristics, you're no longer a quote person, even though you might be a human being. So, <clears throat> I think that, that what John is referring to is the point that really human beings have to be protected by the law because all these distinctions end up being arbitrary. I mean, think about this issue of a human embryo in a Petri dish in a laboratory or in storage in an embryo, you know, bank. <clears throat> is that a human, is that a human being? Well, it was at the beginning. Does it matter that it's in a storage bank or it's in a Petri dish and not in a woman's womb? Does that make it a human being or does it make it not a human being? I mean, logically, if, if that mattered, we would be saying that the location of the thing determines what it is. But that, to me, is no more intelligible than saying if I cross the border, uh, into Canada, I am no longer a human being. I have simply moved or been moved from one location to another. Nothing has changed about me. I think there was a, a, a movie years ago that was talked about somebody who had been taken into slavery. who was a free black man and he was taken into slavery for 12 years and then he escaped and got back to free uh, land where he could be free again. Nothing changed about who that, that person was. He was the same person. But yet, when he was taken into slavery, his humanity was denied, and he was treated in a way fundamentally different than other human beings. So, look, it, so it, can't ma it can't change who that person is, that he was at one point in a, quote, free part of the United States and then in a, quote, slave part of the United States. He, he is the same person. You do, he doesn't become a non-person because he crosses the border into the American South before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember in the 1970s or 80s that Gary Trudeau, who wrote the comic strip Doonesbury, had a very sarcastic little, a little uh, making fun of the idea that, it, that a fetus or an embryo had any, he called it Timmy, and he made fun of, I believe, and he made fun of the fact, the whole idea that, that early life had any value or, or it was, it was kind of 
gruesome, I can't use that term, or flip, you know, in terms of serious issues. Um, one, one, uh, speaking of the feeling, the, the idea of feelings, one in the chapter in Ireland, there was an eth interesting ethical issue that I think was worth mentioning is that in terms of the uh, uh, doctors, psychiatrists there were felt pressured to sign off on abortions uh, for women who claimed they were experiencing suicidal ideation because they were not allowed to get abortions. And they felt that they, they were being pressured to say, oh, well, she's, ex again, you were talking about the, the broad view of, of health and, and the question of abortion. And these women simply would say, well, I, I, I feel I, I'm going to commit suicide. In a way, the psychiatrists were feeling they were being emotionally and professionally blackmailed to, to, put the, 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 the mother's mental health with on a very unscientific basis. They felt that there was no, there was no standard of, of, of medical practice to, to justify this, this uh, social pressure that they were feeling. Does that ever happen in the United States? Well, um, or psychiatrists more willing, or they're, they're more eager to do to sign off. Well, since there are no limits in the United States, you know, uh, Oh, that's interesting. So, there, so Ireland has that limit, and the U.S. doesn't so much. Well, uh, it did have. Uh, I, let me talk for a second about Ireland because it's an interesting case. I think it's one of the very few countries where some people would argue that um, abortion has been permitted by democratic popular process. And to some extent, there's some truth in that because ultimately the Irish people repealed part of their constitution, which protected the unborn. But um, so in a society, though, where abortion is very restricted or restricted at all, doctors who think it is an impermissible thing to do can be a lot of pressure placed on them to do an abortion. Um, so that happens in places like Ireland and in the past and in Poland and places like that where a medical community feels like it's not appropriate medicine to do this, and yet there's a lot of pressure on them. And then if they don't do it, they'll get sued, and then the question becomes, do there, is their right of conscience protected or not under the law? And in some cases surprisingly have said no their right to conscience is not protected um, so it's um, it is a big issue I mean I think for, for those who think abortion should be a right um, it seems to me or that embryo destruction should be a right um, or that even anything like embryo uh, experimentation using embryos in experiments should be permissible. They should at least agree that those who disagree on those scores should have their conscience rights protected, but that's not what you see in, in the politics. It's uh, trying to force people who don't agree with that out of the medical profession, as has happened in, in, in different places, uh, Ireland, Poland. It hasn't had yeah, to happen so much here, but but it could happen here. I mean, there's always been a federal law that restricts funding uh, if the conscience rights of doctors are interfered with. But if that law were changed, then uh, it's quite possible that conscience rights of doctors not to be trained in abortion and not to have to 
have abortion as part of their medical practice could change. It's, it's quite possible. Yeah, I'd like to read a passage from the chapter on American abortion law in the book by, uh, from your book, Gerald, in his chapter in it, Gerard V. Bradley writes, lawful abortion will become more, not less, pol- divisive politically and socially. The alienation of so many pro-life persons from the basic governing structures of society will increase over time, not decrease. Graver impositions on them will be needed to keep the incumbent re- abortion regime intact. And I think that speaks to what you're saying about the there'll be blocked people can be blocked from certain professions or you're not allowed to even speak about it. It's that's right. Um, and that's why it's so important that our kind of extreme abortion regime here, one of the fourth most worst or most permissive in the world needs to change is because then the kind of state laws you were talking about that seem to be being passed, but are never, enforced because the courts enjoin them, could be passed. So if the people in, let's say, uh, New York or California wanted to have permissive abortion laws, they could have them. But if the people in just, again, to say Texas or uh, Florida or, you know, Alabama did not want to have them, they wouldn't have to have them. And that would be decided through the legislatures of those states. And it wouldn't prohibit anybody from arguing for more or less permissive abortion regime, but it would put it in the hands of the people, and then the people would, and I mean all the people, would have to reach some compromises, because, and you know, in worst case scenario, you know, you could move to another state or whatever, but they, it would be, it wouldn't be removed from you by the court so that you have no impact on it. Mm. Well, apropos of the, the value, I think, of the book is it really is very thought-provoking. Thought and I, I hope that liberal feminists in particular or liberals in general read it. And I just want to, because it exposes them to ideas that may seem anathema to them, but that, that they just have never considered or never even come in contact with. And for example, I'd like to read two passages briefly from the chapter on Peru. We read, Creating any kind of risk to unborn life is beyond the proper limits of the rights of the right of women to reproductive self-determination. And that's a very interesting thing is that creating any kind of risk to unborn life, that's a very strong statement. And the chapter on Mexico says about men, which are often just completely <laughs> non, non-people in dis- these discussions. In the chapter on Mexico, we read, men are denied their own right to reproductive freedom in view of becoming a father for their choice is totally subordinated to that of the women's unilateral decision to choose termination of pregnancy. And I, I hope, again, that people will read that and, and, and just think about those issues, even if they might find them absolutely appalling, the idea that men have any say in this. Um, one, one question I'd like to ask is, did you feel hopeful after the book was finished or distressed at the state of the affairs for the unborn? Did you certainly the book is impressive and it, that must have been heartening that there's such a, a lively and articulate authoritative level of scholarship on the subject. Yes. Um, I, I feel that it's, it's unfortunate generally that, uh, <coughs> society as any societies are moving to recognize more abortion or embryo destructive research because again what i said just you know as with those you know uh lowest of the low i mean taken in slavery in sudan i mean they they were treated they were taken 
and the word that was used for them was a a, a local wor word that meant firewood. They weren't even human beings. They just they're like so. You know, being a human being and having the right to legal protection should not turn on whether you have powerful friends or whether you know how wealthy you know your parents are or where you are or whether you're black or white it should simply flow from the fact that you're a human being now i think that in a number of these societies where this right or the extreme rights like canada and the united states has been created by judiciary uh, that they they can be changed by judi you know by judiciary or you know if Canada in Canada if the Parliament would pass a law it would change things so I think that makes it incumbent upon the people who find these situations unjust to work to make them uh, more just um, in the United States um, you know I I think if there were like I said most states would or there would be variety among states. Some states would permit most abortions. Some states would prohibit most abortions. Um, so I'm hopeful that when you get it out of the courts and into the popular uh, consideration, that a more just result can be reached. Uh, I also would say that Latin America is the most pro-life or, I mean, they have legal principles called the pro hominem. Uh, principle and other things where they you you err on the side of protecting life if you're going to make an error an error you know you err on the side of that not against it and the struggle there uh, to see some of those countries moving in what I consider to be the wrong direction is a little bit discouraging because they're kind of an example for for everybody else on the other hand they're great lawyers uh, and judges there who and there are great constitutions there that protect life. I think, for me personally, uh, judges, if judges were more circumspect and more modest about what their role is, we would have a more just situation worldwide. Well, Bill, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm working on... Uh, of course, getting our students ready, getting my next class of students coming in. And uh, I have a couple of projects connected to a report called the Report on Unalienable Rights that was released by the uh, a commission created by the State Department on human rights. <clears throat> and that's where a lot of my effort is right now. Yeah, I see you're going to later this week, you're going to interview Robert P. George about that report. And it would be, I, I urge people to, I imagine that the video of that will be posted online after after the conversation. So I urge people to watch that if that's so. Yeah, yeah, it, w it will be. Um, oh, good. That's that's good. Because I've seen you in conversation with him before. And it's. It, I was kind of intimidated interviewing you because you're a, such a skillful interviewer yourself that I was a little bit leery of trying to tackle you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, good. Well, with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, co uh, William, William L. Saunders, co-editor of the book, Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights, Leading Constitutional Cases Under Scrutiny. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.